Hey everybody, welcome to Mining Stock Daily. This is Trevor Hall and today is Friday, September 6th. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is going to be our last in-depth interview before the Beaver Creek Precious Metals Summit and the Denver Gold Forum where I will be collecting a lot of content, doing a lot of interviews with a number of executives from junior mining companies from all over the world. So looking forward to that and airing those conversations with you in the weeks to come. Uh, just a reminder, miningstockdaily.com is now live and we are starting to upload more content into the archives from previous shows and that includes transcripts and the audio recordings uh, from those podcasts. So please be sure to go to miningstockdaily.com and also, subscribe to the podcast if you have not yet done so. Before we get to my conversation with Peter Bodish, I want to thank our sponsors. That's Integra Resources, Pacific Empire Minerals, Minera Alamos, and Western Copper and Gold. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast, and I'm very much looking forward to catching up with all of you in the next few weeks. So my interview with Peter Bodish, you may not recognize the name, but you might recognize the face or vice versa. But Peter has 40 years of experience. He's done it all from geolo exploration geology to mine engineering to uh, mergers and acquisitions and uh, directors of mini boards. So it was a great conversation. I was really humbled to be speaking with Peter because we've known each other for a number of years, but haven't necessarily done an interview for the podcast. Um, it's a pretty meaningful conversation. How do you wrap up 40 years of experience into one uh, 30 minute interview? Uh, I hope you get a lot of value out of it as I did too. We actually get a little philosophical about the industry um, and uh, bring it down to earth a little bit, which is nice. So without further ado, I'm going to start my conversation with Peter. Thank you so much for tuning in. Have a great weekend and I look forward to seeing as many of you in the weeks to come. Thank you so much. Hey, welcome everybody. This is Trevor Hall, your host with Mining Stock Daily. Today is Friday and we usually do our in-depth interview. Today I've got a great person sitting in well with my makeshift studio, which also uh, is my office and uh, spare bedroom in my own basement. Hey, we've, got, we've all got to start somewhere, right? Absolutely. Peter? So mm -hmm. with me now is uh, Peter uh, Bodish. He is, I would say, a very well-known person throughout the junior mining industry. Um, you may not, re you may recognize the name, but not the face, or recognize the face, but not the name. But the fact is, is Peter has over 40 years of experience in the mining industry, strong background in corporate management, uh, anywhere from exploration to feasibility study stage in mine construction operations decommissioning. Peter, my first question for you: Is there anything in this industry you have not done? Oh, <laughs> this is a very good question. There's probably lots of things I haven't done, but there's a million things that I've touched or broached on. Uh, I'm a bit of a jack of all trades rather than a master of one particular group. Um, I started out as a geologist and then changed to mining engineering and then slowly it all came together when I got going with the, within the Naranda group doing mergers and acquisitions. It's a great way to get to know every part of the industry. Um, and uh, but at the same time, I kept in touch with operations, getting them going, closing them down, and working with them. So production is the is my preference. Although in this industry, you get into the exploration and the the promotional side mm -hmm. of the business as well. So, is geology something that you 
uh, had interest in at a young age. And you went to school in your undergraduate university in geology, correct? Correct, yeah. And was that in Leicester? In Leicester in England, yes. Yes. So, are you, are, so are, t tell me what took you to Leicester. Oh, I was born and brought up in Yorkshire. Okay. In, in England. Uh, I started collecting rocks when I was about 10 years old. Um, started to go caving, spelunking for the yeah. North Americans. Uh, and then deeper and deeper into mountain climbing and uh, stuff like that. Uh, but caving was my main uh, main sport throughout my teenage years. So I'm very mm. comfortable in underground situations. Yeah. I started to do geology at uh, high school, at grammar school, and then continued on to university. I finished university in ninety in seventy two and went straight o overseas to Africa to okay. work on a mine. And what what was your first job uh, on the mine in Africa? It was a mine geologist at the Marampa Iron Ore Mines in oh. Sierra Leone. Well, so I'm a I'm a huge Premier League soccer fan, so I, I can't talk to somebody from the UK without asking them. But so so were you a Leicester Foxes fan or no? Not no, really. I, I was brought up as a Leeds United fan. Oh really? Oh how interesting. <laughs> so when they made the five thousand to one run a couple of years ago, you really didn't care. <laughs> well, that, that's true. Yeah, but. Uh, no, uh, I was proud of Leicester when they won. Yes. Okay, very it was good. Very, very good. All right, well, <laughs> back to business. Um, one of the things don't I forget they had uh, in my time when I was at university, the goalie at Leicester was a goalie for England as well. Oh, but who's that? Uh, I'm trying to think of his name now. Uh, uh, oh, we'll mental back. block. We'll go back to it. We'll go back to it. Okay, uh, back to back to business here. Um, I was just kind of curious. So you said you transitioned from geology into mine engineering. Was that on purpose, something that you pursued academically, or was it something you were thrown into? No, uh, I guess at my first job, the person that took me under wing and acted as a mentor was the chief engineer. And uh, he showed me the error of my ways of staying in geology. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, he, he taught me uh, mine production and uh, how to make money at the business which unfortunately is not something they teach at universities, how to make money at the business. I really thought I was gonna spend my life mapping yeah. geological formations. Yeah, you know, I know a mutual friend, Mickey Fulp, had this, um, had a essay last uh, last winter that we aired on the show, but it was, he called it, I think it was the, the trouble with geologists, and basically the assumption was they, there's not enough economic foundation. That's absolutely correct, and I read that uh, thesis of his. And, yeah, uh, so you completely agree. I completely agree. Do you, what, how, how difficult was it for you to pick up the economics of the business coming from a science and geology background? That part wasn't difficult at all. Uh, I mean, I've always been interested in making money. Okay. Uh, so uh, it wasn't an alien concept. And the fact that I could do something that I enjoyed, which is collecting rocks and looking at rocks and actually make money out of it, um, A, it was a revelation and then it was a great interest. Okay. All right. Um, during the course of your career, uh, in your bio I read, you visited and evaluated properties in over 70 countries, carrying out approximately 20 significant corporate acquisitions, mergers, and sales. And so I wanted to ask you about M&A right now. Last year during the uh, uh, Newmont and uh, Gold Corp mergers and the Barrick and Rangold mergers, all we heard about was, oh, M&A is heating up, M&A is heating up. We're going to see a bunch of it coming down. And I had this conversation with David Erfley last week, an uh, interview on the show. And I think uh, it's kind of caught me a little bit, maybe it's about uh, by surprise that I don't think there's been as much M&A in the sector as 
we mm-hmm. kind of expected to see a year ago. And I'm just kind of curious, what are your thoughts on that? Is this a, is it going to be a slow process? Uh, is MA a given or, you know, given your experience and background, where, where are we at in this cycle? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a very interesting and complicated question. First of all, um, and I sometimes have a problem with understanding why people do a particular M&A. Are they doing it because they're constrained to have immediate growth? Uh, or are they really trying to build a business? I'm a business person and I like to do things to build the business as opposed to making a quick buck or flipping it or promoting it or having more ounces than anybody else or having more minds than the other person. Um, I have been a bit dismayed over the years how the financial industry has been pushing the business side, the mining people, to do mergers just for the heck of growth and showing growth just so the stock can go up. Um, I don't think, uh, and there's been periods of time when that's been quite concentrated and it's been bad for the business because when it crumbles, then you throw away all the people that you've trained, you get this lag in uh, people of a certain age or a generation (coughs) of mining people. So the industry flounders at that point, if that's the reason for doing the M&As. So do you think that's more of a, you take more of a traditional, maybe romantic view of the industry, like, you know, kind of, we don't, you more or less are sticking with the people on boots on the ground rather than the people up in the corporate offices in Toronto or New York that want these mergers? I I would uh, tend to agree with that. You can't ignore any aspect of the industry. You do need the top guys, the promoters, the drivers. You do need the financing. You do need new equity coming into the system. But you also need the new blood down at the bottom making the work happen. You can't just make a spreadsheet and say, I'm going to make money. Somebody's actually got to do the work. And that's where the two sometimes don't jive with each other. Was there anything that happened in your career that maybe set that mentality of yours and, and thought that, you know, what I'm seeing or witnessing now I don't agree with and has maybe formed that uh, opinion? Yeah, I won't say it's now. I think it's some, uh, something I've recognized over a whole career. Mm-hmm. But it changes in style and character a lot as you go along. It tends to be driven by the commodity cycles. And if you look at commodity cycles, go back to 1900, the wavelength and the amplitude of these commodity cycles, be it gold or copper or whatever, they started off nice and slow and then like a wave coming to shore, they get steeper and bigger. And where I don't know what happens when it becomes vertical. Uh, You have infinity loss or infinity gain, I guess, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but you have a tsunami effect. Uh, arriving down at the bottom but the industry down at the ground level goes with that obviously if a company can't make money on the down cycle and it goes out of business you lay off all your people they go off and do other things and never come back to your industry but uh, the the M&A part of it also tends to go with it when you're on a bull cycle, everybody wants to become bigger and better and the bankers and the brokers and the financial industry and the investors are encouraging this and it gets overheated and that's a problem. Whenever you overheat, uh, that's when eventually it crashes and you end up with the problem. Is that, is that what happened uh, years ago? You know, we were chatting, I chatted, was chatting with somebody a couple of weeks ago about um, 
you know, majors have been known to make mistakes in their acquisitions and spending too much money and kind of getting over their head. Is that kind of where what you're talking about here, where it's getting overly heated and people are over overvaluating projects that they're acquiring? Um, do you think that uh, some of the majors that uh, maybe are looking at projects for acquisition are um, going to make the same mistakes, or do you think that that's maybe behind them again? Never behind. Again, it goes with the cycles. Uh, things get very heated up and the competition gets quite fierce and people start offering bigger premiums for the sake of giving a premium. If you're paying a premium because you can see something better in the geology or the future of the mine or you can do something quite differently and make a lot of money that you're just not disclosing to the mm -hmm. seller, then fine, pay your premium. But don't pay the premium just because there's more ounces in the ground that you'll never know if you're ever going to get them out of there. Yeah. I w actually, it's a good question I want to ask you because I've always wondered about premiums itself. So during an acquisition, um, and let's use the Atlantic Gold St. Barbara's acquisition uh, mm -hmm. that happened a couple of months ago. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I haven't been involved in the business long enough to understand what a good valued premium is in an acquisition, but I've seen things from... 20% to 40% over the last uh, year and a half. And I've always, nothing's really stuck to me as an investor that says, that is a good premium for my dollar. Yeah. And I'm just kind of curious, like, what is a good premium? Is it 40%? Is it is 30% enough? Is, is it higher than 40%? I guess, what is an investor, a typical retail investor playing in this sector? What does a good premium look like? I don't think there's an answer to that question, quite honestly. Uh, I think uh, a lot of people, well, the question you're asking basically comes to comparables mm -hmm. and how do you compare with other people in the industry? And yes, it tends, especially in good time, tends to run around 30 odd percent as a premium, somewhere between that 20 to 40, although it sometimes goes outside of it. But just paying a premium because everybody else is paying a premium or it looks like they're paying a premium is not a correct way of valuing things. Okay. If they're paying the premium, like I suggested, because they can do something better or they can they see how that they are going to earn that premium, as opposed to just hoping that the price of the metal will go up at some future date or some promoter will pay an even higher promoter yeah, um, yeah. Um, amount to them. Those are bad reasons for doing it. But okay. if you have an internal business reason for doing it, then fine, go ahead and pay it. Okay. Um, I wanted to ask you about financings, actually. So in your, your recent endeavor, you were with Pembridge working with the mental mine, and you have worked with them through the financing with, I believe, it was, Sumi, was it Sumitomo? There's a portion of it that works with Sumitomo. There's also a large portion of private equity involved. In okay, that. so that's not necessarily my question, but it, my question is kind of an, over, an overarching look at where we are with financings right now. We've seen a lot of money coming in. I mean, I think Eric Sprott's put over $120 million of his money that he's profited from Kirkland Lake into many junior resource sectors. Uh, the hope is that we're going to see more smart money coming back from their vacations and, uh, you know, next week in Beaver Creek, Precious Meadows decide where they're going to allocate some of that money. Um, in your mind, uh, is, finance, is financing now for projects going to get easier uh, with this new cycle or are we still going to be struggling to raise capital for exploration projects moving forward? 
I don't quite know how that's going to happen. I'd like to think that new money will come in as the price of the metal goes goes up, and specifically gold we're talking about at the mm -hmm. moment, although copper has taken a, a sag at the moment. Right. Um, but that's a commodity thing more in line with the trade disputes that are going on. But gold is uh, has got a good number of reasons to continue going up, and I'm very bullish on it, and I'm hoping that it'll attract uh, other people to come into the into the investment business. We've had a lot of competition over the last few years with cannabis, with uh, cryptocurrencies. Um, sometimes it's the real estate market. You name it. Money moves where money can make the most uh, money, and uh, lately it hasn't been in the metals business, but because it was sagging so much, there's a lot of upside opportunity. So I hope people will recognize that and come into it. Mm -hmm. um, it tends to be a slow process getting money back into a, an industry that has kind of failed in the past. Has it always been that way? Because I'm not, I just, I've always heard from other industries outside of mining and mineral explorations that there's so much money available. There's so much venture capital available. Does that just describe the failure of the industry to really put itself in front of new, younger money? And how do we fix that? There is a component of that, and I do worry about that personally, that uh, young people don't understand or have not been taught where their products come from. They all think that, I shouldn't say they all, many people think you know, electricity comes out of the wall and you name it, uh, it just suddenly appears. Right. And the fact that it has to be mined and uh, worked and smelted and produced into whatever it, they need, yeah. kind of, many people are oblivious to that fact. And it's always just racked my brain because it's, you know, it almost seems like any programmer or a lot of programs who have a good idea for an app or software can go approach some venture capital company that has some sort of fund with money to allocate towards these types of things and there's a lot of avenues to get that programmer money to start producing the app and and see what happens it's not a whole lot different than the way financing happens for junior mining companies right mm -hmm. but it almost seems that as the industry on the technology side as that approach to capital has expanded in ways um, that's almost hard to keep up with anymore but also readily available the mining and exploration industry has kind of stayed in that little bubble, continued to try to pry money towards the same people that go to PDAC, that go to you know precious metals, that type of thing. And we haven't been able to really look outside the box and actually put our necks out there a little bit more and ask new, younger venture capitalist type of people to say, hey, here's the value we can provide. Here's what kind of return mm -hmm. we think we can provide, but we got to have the capital to get there first. Um, have you seen anything new on the financing side or capital side that's uh, you know in the last five years, or are we still doing the same thing we did 20 years ago? Well, unfortunately, you've hit the nail on the head. The new IT systems and the ones that the young people go for, there's an excitement in them. There's a future to them. They can see or not see something that will happen in the future. And it, it excites people. But I tell you with the mining industry, and it's been a great disappointment to me personally over many, many years. You do these feasibility studies, you look at them and you finally build the mine. 
and everybody who puts money into it and it tends to be more staid money that comes into it on the large construction side they want sure fire tested methods done when that mine is built it's already 10 years out of date mm. that is the big problem that's why mining is not exciting because it's old stuff um, if we could demonstrate by actually doing that we're going forward and there's an awful lot of IT and IOT that goes on in in minds that people mm. aren't fully aware of or it's not being transmitted to the younger generation but those that do come into it recognize well this is exciting stuff but there is still a very very great drive to only do tested things that have been done before and not get into real exciting future things do you think part of the issue is that mining is actually and we know this is without the scientific and engineering foundation it makes some of those studies and those technical reports really difficult to judge what's going to work and what's what's not and i think a perfect example is um yesterday rio 2's pre-feasibility study i mean the response online was this is a very good uh, PFS, there's nothing out of the ordinary that's actually maybe more conservative than they needed to be, but they also paid the price. Stock-wise, it really uh, uh, moved down pretty hard uh, because I think people were worried about water. Uh, they were going to be trucking in water. Um, you know, that's just a brief snapshot of what happened yesterday. Mm -hmm. uh, but I was one that actually, I you know, I read uh, the PFS and said that's pretty good. It's actually it's it's not there's no major red flags here maybe the water's red flag but it doesn't seem like it's anything um too out of the ordinary um but the market didn't appreciate it and you know is there a way to simplify the process in some of these reports to make it i don't want to say layman i don't want to oversimplify because that's when you really get in trouble right mm -hmm. but at least make it approachable for more people to comprehend what the process is going to be wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> 43101, when it was put in place, was supposed to be a good, readable summary document. And it's turned into a very complex, almost incomprehensible document. Yeah, who wants to read it? You know, like, exactly. It's 2,000 pages sometimes. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, that was not the original intent of 43101 when it was put in place. Uh, but that's the way it has gone. And sure enough, you know, the mining analysts and people will read that and comment on it, but that's just their comment. You want the actual person with the money who's going to invest to read it and say, whoa, I like the sound of this mm -hmm. because I understand it and I can see the problems they're facing or the lack of problems they're facing and I'll go along with it. Um, I, I think that's been de detrimental to our industry. Mm. Uh, putting discipline into what's needed for a feasibility study or a 43101 or anything like that. that's all very good but you've got to translate it into readable form as well okay that's actually a good lead way um, into my next question as you talked about discipline and i want to ask you about mentality um you've had a long career in this industry longer than a lot of other people maybe started out in mining and then either went to services or even just left the industry altogether um what kind of mentality does it take to have a long, successful career in mining and exploration? Uh, Going to be a bit of a masochist, I guess. <laughs> um, 
You need financial staying power, that's for sure. What do you mean uh, by that? Well, depending on where you are at what level uh, in your career, uh, can you put up with a layoff? Can you put up with uh, a reduction in your pay and still keep your manner of living? Uh, so you have to be kind of diversified in how you're getting your money. Mm -hmm. uh, that's one recommendation I have for young people coming into this particular industry. Don't just rely on that paycheck coming every Friday afternoon. Uh, have some investments that are doing okay. Get into the whole scheme of things. So uh, you're actually making some money maybe in some other ways so that if things go bad, you can hang on without having to break into your IRAs and RRSPs and mm -hmm. all the rest of it, which is very detrimental to your later in life future. So that's one thing, you've got to have some kind of staying power. Um, you've also got to be very willing to run around the world, go where you can go. Now the world is getting more complicated politically, there's a lot of strife around the place, immigration's got much more complex in countries where you, years ago there was no real immigration problem uh, and that was part of the excitement and the lure of the mining industry to go work in thailand or mm -hmm. parts of west africa and whatever and stay alive <laughs> now you're not guaranteed of that either somebody with a machine gun or somebody carrying a disease that can come up to you and put you away very quickly yeah yeah <laughs> um i find that a lot of young people today with their I, I don't want to blanket every young person and say they have this instant gratification feeling, but it is a very strong feeling at the moment and they like to live in the cities and mm -hmm. uh, not go out uh, of their comfort zone, if you may, uh, just living a nice, steady, enjoyable life. Uh, you can't do that in the mining industry. I wanted to ask you about cycles. Um, you said you have to persevere through a number of cycles, ups and downs, and be ready for it. You've gone through a number of cycles, not just industry-wise, but personally yeah. with your health, um, uh, cancer survivor, and still still working uh, towards it, and you're still kicking, obviously. Yeah. And uh, that's something I didn't know about you until, uh, actually, we just pressed record. And so, I would actually just, I don't want to ask you about um, cancer, but I want to ask you about how have you continued to work and you know, fought the good fight against cancer, and what you know, how was that? How has cancer changed your? Um, how's how has it changed the way you approach the business on on a personal level? <laughs> That's a very very interesting question. Um, I was fortunate in that I was already working for myself. I have worked for myself for over twenty five years. Uh, so when uh, I was diagnosed with that. It wasn't a case of, oh, I'm losing my income. What do I do now? Mm -hmm. I'd already well established myself and uh, being director of various companies and having other sources of income. So I was in a position that I could slow down. I work out of uh, work for myself. So I just told my boss to take it easy on me a little <laughs> bit. Um, I didn't have to stray far from home. I could get the necessary treatment that I needed at the same time still being involved and I remember being in the hospital bed for quite a while and doing conference calls, board meetings and what have you. 
and it actually kept my strength up doing that as opposed to depleting my strength it gave yeah. me energy to that I, my mind was still working on many other things but when I came out of it and after you've gone through all the things that you go through with cancer the periods of anger and the periods of depression and all the rest of it and you come back to your new normalcy that uh, mm -hmm. you kind of attain I found myself um, a lot more forgiving uh, a lot calmer than before uh, I could put up with um, other people's problems uh, indiscretions <laughs> you name it yeah. not totally but <laughs> <laughs> to, to a larger to a larger extent put yeah. it that way um, a lot more peaceful uh, things will get done don't worry just stick to your knitting look forward and keep going yeah. and I also had a much greater appreciation for the younger people now uh, before the cancer it would just you know get out of my way uh, I'm coming with my torpedoes and yeah. uh, now it's just okay relax here young people come on in see what you can do show me what you can do yeah and uh, and live with it and I think that's really important because I, I wanted to chat with you a little bit about kindness and gratitude um, and I know we're maybe getting a little uh, philosophical but it still pertains to the industry a little bit and I think one of the things that uh, I always remember uh, meeting you for the first couple times and shaking your hands was like I was like man that, that, guy's, that guy's a really nice guy <laughs> thank you <laughs> and and in in an industry to where you know the hustle and bustle can get to us like we're a lot of people are always on the move. We're always trying to make that big discovery. We're always trying to make the big financing and and appease the shareholders and and um, be the talk of the town. You know, it stereotypically there's an ego that comes with it, right? Absolutely. And I just that's why I think like talking about gratitude and kindness and love, for lack of a better word, like is maybe underappreciated in this industry. And do we need to get back to actually just like supporting each other as an industry as a whole? Or, you know, in calling out the red flags where we see them? Um, or is it always gonna be me and my company against everybody else? Again, you know, these are some of the problems with the industry. Uh, I'm glad you recognize all of those things because they are very, very important. Uh, it is ego-driven, especially at the finance end, at the top end. Um, again, driven a lot by people who never get out of town. They just have their checkbook and uh, they say, you know, I want my money back in a short period of time with X return, without thinking of all the hundreds of people that go into building these things and making them work on a daily basis. That's where my love of the industry really is. Um, I look more upon the money as a necessity that, yeah, we've got to conform and we've got to provide for them, but that's not the be-all and end-all of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. It's providing paychecks to a myriad of people, you know, a, a percentage of a country even, right. uh, who are working on these things and providing for the GDP of a country even, or a state or a province or whatever. But also there's been a a dramatic change in the whole politics of life over the last few decades giving more lands to First Nations and others 
my first involvement of that was uh, in Alaska with the Doi, uh, well, they, they created um, the, the Indian corporations up there, and I worked on lands that were administered through the Doyon. And I found that a very pleasing um, accomplishment, put it that way. Uh, at first, you know, everyone said, oh, you know, we can't give all this land up and all the rest of it, and uh, how are we going to do our business if we have to share it with everybody? But that's the whole point of doing these things, sharing. Uh, with the Minto uh, and uh, the copper mine up in Yukon, we're, that's on uh, First Nation settlement mm -hmm. land. Uh, we have to accept that it's not just us grabbing as much of the money and running with it as we can and giving it back to the people. We have to share it with everybody around us as well. And the same goes with whether it's here in Indonesia or in West Africa or wherever. Now, they're all at different levels, I recognize that, but uh, yeah. we can't just kind of think, well, we're the big tough miner and we're going to go down there and rape and pillage as much as we can. Right. I'm actually uh, speaking on a panel discussion in Nebraska in a couple of weeks of all places about resources, and one of the questions that I know is going to be answered is land use. Um, and one of the things I have been kind of thinking about and spoke with them online just brief was, the differences between how the U.S. uses First Nation lands for resources compared to Canada, and I said, and I, you know, I just kind of spoke out loud, and I said, you know, both countries aren't perfect, but on the book, it almost seems like Canada does it better. Um, it may not be a popular uh, idea of mine, but it definitely seems that way. Um, I know working in the Yukon and working both in Canada and the United States is that. Do you feel the same way, or in, or does the U.S. do things better than Canada does? Uh, I am a Canadian. I've got to tell you that. Okay. First. <laughs> I have Canadian citizenship. Uh, I'm very proud of it. Um, on things like this, where human interaction is uh, is required, Canada does seem to be doing a better job. But it's not uh, perfect. But it's not perfect, no. But also the people have to recognize it as well. Now, if you just try and compare the very simplistic parts of American versus Canadian politics, America is very polarized. You see what's going on right now, uh, the mm -hmm. progressive left, uh, and then there's the far right as well. We're, we're, the politics down here is just getting extremely polarized. But the same goes for everything else in daily life in America. Yeah. Some of it's driven by Me Too, some of it's driven by just the way it, it, it's gone. Canada is a much gentler society when it comes to the politics of it. But at the same time, the people also have to recognize. So there's been settlement lands to the First Nations. I know there's a lot of people saying, oh, we've given up too much, but that's not the point. The government of Canada that was elected by the people said, this is what we're going to do. So accept it. Work with it. Don't try and fight it in any way. Don't try and uh, uh, your, your duty to negotiate. Uh, don't try to short circuit that or not give enough information. You've got to work with uh, everybody around you. Uh, that's been decreed by the government that was elected by the Canadian people, like it or not. So go with it. Yeah. Um, we have spoken a lot of things about uh, 
things that the industry have maybe struggled with and failed <laughs> in the past, but I, I do want to spend some time talking about what the industry has done really well. Um, and one of the things that I think that the industry has done well actually is going to take place here in Denver, and that's both the Precious Metals Summit and Denver Gold Forum. And um, we are lucky enough to both live in Denver. You actually live down the street from us, which is, <laughs> we didn't realize that until about a year ago. Um, but it is a really good time uh, to welcome everybody to the United States that maybe doesn't get a whole lot of all of the exploration and mining um, highlights in the news. You know, Canada and uh, many parts of South America and Africa have better, maybe have more established um, mining industries. That's on the perception of most people. But the but Denver is really a big hub in the United States for this. And so once a year, the global industry embarks to Denver mm -hmm. and, and the mountains to, to do this. What are some of the things that you are looking forward to, um, conversations you're looking forward to have while uh, many of our friends uh, come here and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, tell their stories? Right. Yeah. No, no, Denver is a great place. Uh, I came here 27 years ago. It was a kind of the tail end of Denver being the mining capital of the U.S. Mm -hmm. It's now spread out a little bit, a bit of it in Reno and various other places as well. But it, there's still quite a number of uh, significant uh, people here in town. Um, it tends not to have the financing part as well as, say, Toronto. Toronto right. has the consultants, the companies, and the financing all in one place. Uh, it's lacking in Denver, um, but uh, on the finance side. So a lot of finance people come here and we get caught up a little <laughs> bit on what's going on in the finance. Um, but it also lets the finance people see a little bit of Denver and what the what nature is. A little slower, <laughs> a little slower pace of life. <laughs> that, that's right, yeah. But more enjoyable, nice scenery and all the rest of it. Um, but uh, no, seriously, uh, there's a lot of new ideas constantly coming out and it's good to hear the CEOs of companies expressing the way they see the future of their companies. Uh, I enjoy going to listen to the talks and talking to the individual CEOs and uh, senior management and see what's turning them on about their particular property as opposed to just reading about it and trying to deduce right. it myself. That's very, very important. But you also want to know the, the financial health of the company. And uh, again, you can sometimes miss that with all the promotion that goes on. You really want to quiz the uh, CEOs, how much money have you got left? Uh, how much are you raising? How's your, uh, your, structure, your financial structure in the corporation? And uh, in a more social-like setting, you get a far, far better feel than just reading a presentation or uh, or looking up at the charts yeah. out there. So that's what I'm looking for. But I'm also constantly looking for, uh, and I'll advertise myself, uh, new board positions on companies that I like. I might even put some seed capital up for it. I've done some of my best investments have started off with private seed capitals. Not enormous amounts, but uh, mm -hmm. they turned out to be very successful. And then I might like to go on the board if I share the vision with the CEO. And so I spend a lot of time seeing uh, is there a vision that I just happen to share out there at the moment? Are there any companies out there right now that you're really excited about, you don't mind sharing the idea with? Well, I am a director of Avino, Avino Silver Mines, 
that's run by David Wolfen, and uh, I'm very proud to be a director of that. I've been director for a little over a year on that. Uh, mining silver in Mexico, but we've got a very exciting uh, rejuvenation of a famous old mine in British Columbia, the Braylon Mine, where uh, there's been new geological ideas put in, and it's starting to get results. Um, we're not quite there yet in uh, we've been putting out the uh, news releases and anybody yeah. can read that, but uh, it hasn't been uh, structured yet to say, you know, we've got a mine for the future, guaranteed. That's, yeah. We're not quite there yet. Has, but has the it, silver mines in Mexico are doing uh, okay with the price of silver going up. It's a bit of a relief, I've got to say, uh, because uh, our all-in AISC is uh, all in sustaining cost is somewhere around the $13 equi silver equivalent an ounce. Mm. So uh, when it was at 15, we're a little tight, I've got to admit, but at 19, uh, we're Goodbye. making a few extra dollars there. And how has yeah. the share price performed uh, in the last couple it's of weeks? It's obviously come up uh, from earlier in the year when we sagged down to about the 60 cent level in the kind of the dog days of the silver price. Right now, we're hovering around the 90 cents, I think it's 89 cents today. And the market cap is somewhere on the $60 million mark. And what's the ticker symbol for? ASM. ASM traded on? Yeah. On Toronto and New York. Okay. Avino Silver Mines, ASM. All right, there you go. Peter, uh, thank you so much. I really appreciate you and uh, appreciate your time. And um, this was a very thoughtful conversation and one that I've been wanting to have with you for quite some time. So I'm glad we could finally make it happen. Uh, a few days before a lot of our friends come uh, and join us here in Colorado. So uh, I look forward to seeing you at work uh, both in Beaver Creek and at Denver Golden. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks Trevor, been fun. Mining Stock Daily and its affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decision in connection with the material presented herein.